Welcome to the End of Innocence. I'm your host, John Young. It seems FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover cooperated in November of 1963 what Secret Service agent Paul Landis is now saying about the Kennedy assassination bullet discovery. On November 29, 1963, one week after the assassination in Dallas of John F. Kennedy, newly installed President Lyndon Johnson called FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover for an update on the FBI's investigation so far. As we covered in last week's episode about this historic phone call, Johnson suggested, and Hoover affirmed, in guarded but unmistakable language, that at least one of the shots striking the president had been fired from in front of Kennedy's limousine. Go back and listen to episode 38 for a complete breakdown of that phone call between J. Edgar Hoover and Lyndon Johnson. This private conversation contradicted the emerging official story, which held that Kennedy had been killed by a lone assassin a young New Orleans native named Lee Harvey Oswald, who supposedly shot Kennedy and wounded Texas Governor John Conley from an upper floor in the Texas School Book Depository Building where he had recently landed a job. Because Kennedy's limo had already passed Oswald's building when the shooting began, if Oswald alone had been firing, all the shots would have come from behind. But here were maybe the two most powerful men in the country at the time, discussing at least one shot from up ahead or in front of the president's limousine. Furthermore, the men referred to the shooters as they, clearly suggesting shots from more than one person. It appears as though something has happened in the motorcade route. Something, I repeat, has happened in the motorcade route. There's numerous people running up the hill alongside Elm Street, there by the Simmons Freeway. Several police officers are rushing up the hill at this time. Stand by. From Dallas, Texas, the flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time, some 38 minutes ago. In this week's episode, we continue to examine this call in detail, contrasting the Hoover-Johnson dialogue with the ultimate narrative Johnson's hand-picked Warren Commission later presented to the American people. 
As we begin our consideration, please bear in mind that only one week after the crime, the evidence was still in flux and much was unconfirmed. Hoover, whose FBI dictatorship had already spanned four presidencies, was a master of bureaucratic and political wiles who would have wanted to impress his new president with the FBI's acumen. In fact, he was a notorious braggart, both in public and in private. So he may have presented things to Johnson as factual when they were still ambiguous, a sort of hot take. Nevertheless, Hoover understood the stakes. He was the head of the country's leading law enforcement agency and had tremendous information gathering resources. He was talking to the President of the United States, so he presumably prepared well for the call and was careful and precise in his statements, aware of what he was saying and the implications and consequences of each point. With that in mind, let's now go beyond the tantalizing issue of a possible shooter at the front of the motorcade to scrutinize a second, equally intriguing aspect of that November 29, 1963 phone call between the two men. It involves what appears to be surprising cooperation of a recent claim by a former Secret Service agent who was present during the Dallas motorcade about his discovery of a bullet and the location of that bullet. At one point in their conversation, Hoover explains to Johnson, he says, quote, the third shot is a complete bullet, and that rolled out of the president's head. It tore a large part of the president's head off, and in trying to massage his heart at the hospital, on the way to the hospital, they apparently loosened that and it fell onto the stretcher, and we recovered that, and we have that, end quote. On reflection, that seems a rather jarring statement, since it directly contradicts the Warren Commission's eventual story. The panel's report issued roughly nine months later would state that a bullet was recovered not as Hoover told Johnson on Kennedy's stretcher, but on Connolly's stretcher. That makes a huge difference, because the place where the bullet was found would crucially affect our understanding of the shots, and perhaps the number of shooters. His third shot, which, uh, which hit the president, he was hit for the first and the third. The second shot hit the governor. The third shot is a, completely, is a complete bullet that was shot at. And that rolled out of the president's head. It tore a large part of the president's head off. And uh, in trying to massage his heart at the, on the, at the hospital, on the way to the hospital, they uh, apparently uh, loosened that and that, that fell onto the, the stretcher. And we recovered that. And we have that. And we have the gun here also. Were they aiming the president? Uh, they were aiming directly at the president. The commission's report was built on a scenario in which the bullet allegedly found on Conley's stretcher had traveled first through Kennedy and then through the governor. This scenario followed the commission's stated objectives of explaining how Oswald did it, rather than exploring who might have done it. In line with this objective, the commission formulated a story about one very busy magic bullet. Had the panel not done so, given the intervals between the shots visible on a movie of the motorcade taken by a bystander, it would have been unconvincing to claim one shooter fired them all. But in briefing the new president on the investigation, Hoover doesn't merely contradict what the Warren Commission would later promote as the definitive story of the assassination. As we shall see, he actually invalidates a core contention of the commission. That contention is the basis for the government's whole case that one man, acting alone, was guilty. So let's take a look at this. Does Hoover in 1963 cooperate Landis in 2023? 
Today, Hoover's long-ago little-studied statement to Johnson takes on a new significance because it appears to lend credence to a recent declaration by Paul Landis. Paul Landis, who is 88 years old today, was one of the two Secret Service agents who was guarding Jackie Kennedy on the day of the assassination. The other agent was Clint Hill, who is famous for running up from the follow-up car and jumping on the back of the presidential limo. Landis recently released a book called The Final Witness, which chronicles a shocking story that has previously never been told about a key piece of evidence in the JFK assassination. Landis says that on November 22nd, just after the limousine arrived at the hospital, he found an intact bullet atop its back seat, not far from where Kennedy's head had been. According to Landis, he was worried that that projectile might be lost amid the chaos, so he grabbed it as crucial evidence, put it in his pocket, and shortly thereafter, placed that bullet on Kennedy's stretcher in the emergency room, hoping it might help the doctors understand Kennedy's wounds. The bullet that Landis found looked, quote, largely intact and only moderately damaged, its base having been squeezed in, end quote. It sounds like Landis is describing Commission Exhibit 399, also known as the magic bullet or single bullet, that the Warren Commission says went through Kennedy's body and then entered Governor Connolly's back, shattering his ribs, then fracturing his wrist bone before being implanted into his left thigh. The Warren report concluded that the nearly pristine bullet in evidence, CE-399, was found on Governor Connolly's stretcher. That finding supports the Commission's position that the bullet that went through Kennedy ultimately ended up in Connolly's leg. But Paul Landis is now saying that the pristine bullet, CE-399, is the one he picked up and that he got it at the top of the seat behind Kennedy. This would most likely mean that the bullet fell out of Kennedy's back consistent with the Cybert and O'Neill report, which chronicled the autopsy doctors saying the back wound was of short depth. If that's the case, then CE-399 could not possibly have exited Kennedy's neck and caused Connolly's wounds. And if CE-399 came from anywhere other than Governor Connolly's body, it is a decisive blow to the single bullet theory, which is the backbone of the Warren report. Landis goes on to say that he placed the bullet on President Kennedy's stretcher, not Governor Connolly's stretcher, because he assumed that the bullet would be found if it was on the same stretcher as Kennedy's body. This would mean that when Darrell Tomlinson found the bullet, he was really finding a bullet from Kennedy's stretcher that was placed there by Landis, not a bullet from Connolly's stretcher that fell out of his thigh. Here's Landis talking to NBC News about what he saw after Kennedy was loaded onto a gurney. I happened to look uh, to the right where, Ms., where Mrs. Kenny was sitting and sitting in a pool of blood there, I saw two bright uh, brass bullet fragments. I picked one of them up, looked at it, and it was kind of like the end of my little pinky. It was mushroomed, and I put it back right exactly where I found it. And by then, Mrs. Kennedy was standing up. And I was looking around for other agents. I didn't see anybody, but I saw an intact, fully uh, bullet on the back of the seat where the uh, cushioning meets the met the trunk of the car. And I picked it up and looked at it, and it was only thing I noticed that was wrong with it were, were bullet striations. There was no other deformities. Um, I started to put it back. Mrs. Kennedy and Clint were leaving the car, and uh, I made a quick decision. I, I didn't see anybody to secure the car. People were merging on, on the car. 
Uh, I did not want this piece of evidence to disappear, and I slipped it into my pocket. Um, we raced through the lobby of uh, the, the uh, emergency room. On the way out of the car, I uh, noticed Mrs. Kennedy's pillbox hat, her clutch purse, and I picked them up, and then I noticed there was a Zippo cigarette lighter on the street, on the seat. It was all covered with blood as we raced through the lobby of uh, the emergency room. Uh, we had got to the trauma room one. They had to pivot the uh, gurney that the president's body was on and push it into the trauma room. There was a crowd that kind of enjoyed us doing this. I was pushed right up next to uh, the president's body and standing right next to his feet. Landis's latest revelation is certainly important, but as we covered back in episode 30 of this podcast, his claims have changed over the years. Landis admits not only that he failed to report finding the bullet at the time, but also that he provided accounts in interviews since then that differed in important ways from what he now affirms to be the truth. He cites as his reason for those discrepancies personal trauma and fear of the risk involved in coming forward. This may well be true. Unlike most of his colleagues, he left the Secret Service soon after the assassination. Whatever one may think of his account, Hoover's long-overlooked comment to Johnson can be seen as potentially corroborating Landis' assertion. That means that if indeed a bullet came out of Kennedy's head and, through the actions of Landis, ended up on Kennedy's stretcher and never was on Connolly's stretcher, then the entire convoluted Warren Commission theory is wrong. And just like the House Select Committee on Assassinations concluded in 1979, John Kennedy was killed as a result of a conspiracy. The Warren Commission, it must be understood, was under intense pressure to deliver a persuasive and authoritative report convincing the public that the culprit had been apprehended and the matter was settled. Before the commission was convened, the FBI had leaked a hastily compiled report pinning the assassination on Oswald alone. But this leak wasn't enough to persuade the news media to declare the crime of the century so easily solved. More was needed, so Deputy Attorney General Nicholas Kassenbach drafted a memo on the importance of squashing speculation about the assassination, which then led to the creation of the Warren Commission. The problem it faced in constructing its preferred story of a solo assassin was that several lines of evidence pointed to the existence of too many shots suggesting a conspiracy. One of the main stumbling blocks was the now iconic home movie footage taken at the scene by a local businessman, Abraham Zapruder. Although not publicly released at the time, enough people had seen the film and knew that it showed what appeared to be Kennedy and Conley each in turn reacting to separate shots fired at separate times. Furthermore, these two shots seemed to come too close together to have been fired by a gun attributed to Oswald. In fact, Conley himself would say he thought, quote, two or three people were involved or someone was shooting with an automatic rifle, end quote. 
that is not the slower bolt-action weapon allegedly used by Oswald and found hidden on the book depository sixth floor. But because the Zapruder film would be withheld from the general public until 1975, the Warren Commission could get away with advancing claims that the film actually disproved. So the commission created the so-called single bullet or magic bullet theory, namely that one bullet hit both Kennedy and Conley. In this scenario, the same bullet went into Kennedy's back, out of his throat into Conley's back, out of Conley's chest into his wrist, then into his thigh, leaving behind a small fragment beneath the skin. Then presumably, it fell out onto his stretcher. In this single bullet theory, there were no longer two shots too close together to have come from Oswald's slow bolt-action rifle, and Conley's separate reaction, presumably to a different shot, was dismissed as nothing more than a delayed reaction to that same bullet. Given the discrepancies we have covered the last two episodes, it seems clear that what the authorities believed early on was very different from what Johnson's hand-picked commission would soon report to the American public. Students of history know that this happens with surprising frequency. Some palatable story is settled on because the real story is just too problematic or destabilizing. And Johnson had, right from the first moments after Kennedy's death, begun selling his colleagues on the need to agree on a plausible story. His reason? A raft of dubious material was already being disseminated by intelligence-connected sources, tying Oswald to a larger foreign conspiracy, with the implication that the shooting had been sponsored by Moscow. Johnson, who himself doesn't appear to have believed any of that, told his aides he was worried that if this rumor gained traction, it could trigger a military confrontation, even nuclear war. This became a kind of unspoken basis for agreement that it would not be good to peer too deeply into the whole matter and to get it wrapped up fast. Based on their actions, it is clear that Johnson and Hoover never had any interest in a deeply probing public investigation. Thus, they set in motion the Warren Commission's inquiry, which came to the lesser of two evils conclusion that Oswald alone had done it, for unstated reasons that the young man took to his early grave. But the evidence we have presented here suggests another possibility, that the assassination of John F. Kennedy was planned and carried out not by some Moscow-directed assassin, nor by Oswald alone, if at all, but by a homegrown conspiracy with multiple parts and participants. In short, a highly compartmentalized domestic covert operation, planned and carried out by the expert operatives who had done this sort of thing for years, all over the world as part of their normal work. Next week on the end of Innocence, the JFK assassination. Could the key to JFK's murder be in the hands of a 91-year-old Quaker woman who lives in Northern California? We'll see you next week.